Hello, everyone. Thanks for jumping in to another episode of the podcast. I hope you're doing really well. Today on the show, we've got a really cool guest. His name is James Tenacity Tomlinson, or JT for short. JT is a man of many talents. He's a BJJ black belt. He is a he's an author. He's a co-creator of Bulletproof for BJJ, which is an online strength and conditioning uh, program for BJJ athletes. He has also created a card game as well, uh, which is being sold internationally. And just a really cool guy, really passionate, loads of energy, uh, and really doing good things, a lot of good energy for the culture and wanting to make a lot of positive change. So we talk about his journey as a business owner and creator, uh, some of the opportunities as well as a lot of the challenges as well. So I think you've got to get a lot out of this. Um, if anyone's looking to, whether it's get into small business or, or get a project going or write, uh, you know, start to write more, um, maybe publish something or put something out into the world, I think you'll pick up a lot of energy um, from this conversation. So let's get stuck into it. Thanks for joining me. You're here with John Marsh and let's start the podcast. What would be really cool is to get a little bit of context. And this would be really interesting for me because we've just had the one, really the one phone conversation. And then I, I bumped into you and um, your partner in crime, Joe Worthington, walking <laughs> walking down the street. But um, Joey, maybe, Joey. yeah, could you give us a little bit of um, context around your background? And there's so many directions that we could talk about but I'd love to just hear a little bit around your story coming into the BJJ and the, and the small business and the writing and maybe a little bit of context, you know, through high school days and, and where you, where you yeah. were and, and um, you know, young adult coming into what it is that you do now. Yeah, I guess, um, I, I guess the thing for me is uh, I started uh, the thing that started me on the martial arts journey was really being a bullied kid. So I was a chubby kid in primary school, uh, not particularly athletic. I had asthma. Uh, I was overweight and uh, I just bullied a lot because I was pretty nerdy. So my mother's a school teacher and, you know, uh, she worded me up pretty well on reading and writing, even though I am technically dys dyslexic. I learned a bit of a life hack on how to read when I was younger for pattern recognition. So sometimes when I read words, if they're jumbled, I can recognize the pattern of the word to understand the meaning of the word as opposed to actually reading it. And I learned that in the second grade and that actually helped me a lot. Um, but yeah, man, I think I was about 10 and a half and I'd been bullied a lot since I was very young. Um, I did ballet when I was uh, like very young, like five years old. And I knew some of the school, the girls at school um, in kindergarten when I was like, you know, five and a half, what have you, from ballet. And, you know, at this stage in life, boys and girls do not intermingle. Like boys on this side, girls on that side, girls germs, boys germs, you don't interact. And I knew some of the girls and they're like, hey, and I was like, hey, and the boys like, how do you know them? And I didn't want to admit that I did ballet. So I was like, oh, oh I know them from uh, the school bus. 
but I actually didn't even catch the school bus. Uh, I either walked to school or my mom took me to school. But then when the kids found out that I did ballet, they were like, eh, ballet boy, ballet boy, and like not getting a lot of love there. Um, and then my mom saw fit for me after ballet to put me into gymnastics. Mm -hmm. But as a kind of little chubby kid with not much coordination, this is mild, well, decent torture in terms of hanging out with skinny kids who are very capable and me being the reason my gymnastics team would always lose. Uh, actually, you know, I think my dad felt bad for me. So he would sometimes take me to McDonald's afterwards to make me feel better about having uh, a <laughs> terrible, terrible performance at gymnastics. But I mean, look, to be honest, I mean, my, my, my father is a very healthy guy, I guess as a role model, two synergistic things happened around the age I was 10 and a half. My father went on a really extreme health kick. I mean, he's been a vegetarian since way back in the day. Shout out to my father, Sam Tomlinson. He was a vegetarian back in the 50s. So, you know, like he was a vegetarian before it was a thing. And he was living in rural England. So my father's a very extreme kind of guy, but he started running 10Ks every day and doing weights. And I remember my mom like buying my father, you know, weight benches and setting him up with like a squat rack all on our back veranda. So I was like fascinated looking at that. And then also I, I was getting bullied pretty regularly by some particular kids. And I said to my mom, I want to do self-defense. And it was also around this time that Ninja Turtles were really popping off. You know, it was like one of the most successful toy cartoon sure. franchises yeah, yeah. of its time. And they inspired yeah. me to not only do martial arts, but eat pizza. So uh, anyway, I, um, I started doing Taekwondo. And the thing that really changed me was it was a, a moment of uh, knowledge applied, which I think is the power of martial arts. So we had learned this trip like a... My, my instructor had taught us that uh, confrontations often start with shoving. And after shoving, it very quickly turns to punching. And he, he had said, we have to stop the confrontation before it goes to that striking mode. And he uh, was a black belt in Taekwondo, but he was also um, a practitioner in Wing Chun. Uh, excuse me. And he had, um, he had trained Wing Chun for a fair while and he was teaching us this kind of block and push with a foot trip. Anyway, we practiced it a fair bit that class. And then I think it was like about two days later, uh, there was this kid called Chris Wilson. And Chris Wilson always pick on me. He was like the house captain. He was in year six. He's very athletic. Um, I was in year four, not athletic, pretty chubby. But we are in the same sporting house. And I would always bring the team house points down. My athletic performance was not very good. Uh, anyway, he would come up and pick on me. He had these two little cronies that would roll around with him. And uh, he came up, he started shoving me in the chest. And uh, he was like, you got something for me, Tomlinson? And I was like, nah, man, nah. Like, I never had any money. Uh, I always had very healthy lunches, like tuna and celery sandwiches on multigrain bread. Shout out to my mother for trying to keep me healthy. But they were terrible sandwiches because they were always soggy and, and just, you couldn't trade them. You know, everyone else had Nutella and jam and stuff like that. Anyway, he was like, you know, they get my bag, empty my bag. And he was shoving me in the chest. And I thought to myself, oh man, there's something here. Like I'm getting shoved in the chest. I have an idea I could defend myself. And so he shoved me in the chest and I was like, I'm going to try this move because if I don't try this move, they're going to beat me up. 
And if I do try this move, they're probably going to beat me up. So I'm just going to try it. And I literally just kind of blocked his hands. I shoved him in the chest. And as I shoved him in the chest, I tripped his foot and I nailed it. Like I nailed the timing. I literally hit him. He went like horizontal and then boom, he landed flat on his back and he was winded. And he was just uh, uh, like so badly winded. And then the other kids are like, oh shit, I think this kid knows karate. And I was like, yeah, yeah, believe that. I was like, I got big, man. I thought I was just like, I grew, I doubled in size off the confidence of this one piece of knowledge saved me from getting, uh, uh, you know, getting beat down, getting sent to the nurse's office. And that just set a fire in me, like, holy goodness. Knowing this stuff, it saved my, saved my, my butt. So then I said to my mom, oh, can I go every day? And she was like, yeah, as long as you do your homework. And I was like, right, fine. I do it, I do it. Homework's done, here it is, let's go. And I was there five, six days a week, obsessed. Wow. And um, that's what put me on the martial arts path. And around the same time, when my father was running and doing weights, I started getting interested in resistance training. And, um, and so I was doing like calisthenics at, at, at Taekwondo. So push-ups, sit-ups, running, squatting, all, all the basic martial arts training, which is really good for me. Um, and also I had the background in gymnastics and uh, ballet. So I had really good flexibility. So even though I was a bit chubby, um, I'd, I could do splits and I could kick well above my own head head so they were like oh this this kid's all right like he was gonna fit in yeah and then i started messing around on my dad's weights and he came home early one day from work and he kind of caught me uh messing around on his weights which he never came home early from work he was always at work and uh, he said oh what are you doing and i was like oh uh, nothing i i don't know what i'm doing and he said oh you can't do this you're not allowed to be on here like it's, you're too young to do this and i was like come on Show me something, you know, I'm like 10 and a half, 11 years old. I was like, so I had no real hobbies. I just did school and I just found Taekwondo. And I was like, teach me this stuff. And so he showed me like a, a, a barbell squat, uh, a push up, a pull up, uh, leg extensions, and I think a calf raise, maybe a lat pull down. Anyway, so I think he gave me things that he thought I couldn't hurt myself doing. And he basically said to me, okay, you can do all of these things, but with no weight. You can only do them until you can do a hundred reps of every single move. You can't do any weight. And I was like, okay. But then I was playing with it. So I had permission to use the weights and I just got bored. I was like, I don't want to do a hundred reps. That's, that's nonsense. So I just started putting weight on the bar. And then I was saying to him, you know, have you got some books or magazines? Like I want to learn. Cause I was a nerd, you know, like I was, I would consume information voraciously. And he said, oh Yeah. He gave me Professor Ron Laura's The Matrix, um, which also had Lee Priest as a model in there. And that was, that program was based around hyperplasia. Not that like, that it was actually proven that humans can do it, but it's a great program for hypertrophy at least. Yeah. Um, he also gave me uh, uh, Arnold's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, yeah. the kind of original version. Uh, Reps Magazine. Um, there was like a bunch of old school stuff from Ron Gaspari um, and Lou Ferrino and just all this stuff. And I just started reading it as like a 10 and a half, 11 year old kid. And from about that time to the time I was like 12 and a half, I like grew about a foot or like almost a foot and put on like 
15 kilos. So like puberty kicked in. So by the time I hit year six, I was like the biggest kid in the school. So it was a, a, a time of great change. Yeah, yeah. So then take us through to when did you, like, did you go to uni and stuff or did you, did you I study? Did, I did. Yeah, what did you do? What, um, what kicked you into the career side? Uh, I, I, for me, I was, um, I was in the gym from 11 years old. So I would, I got a special permission note from my parents to go to the gym. Yeah. So I was lifting all through high school. And then when I came to the end of high school, I had thought to myself that I, I wanted to do something gym related. And I'd started doing my cert three, my last year of high school. Um, so that was back in like 2001, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, that would be right. And then, uh, that, so that was during my like HSC, like UAI year. Um, and I, I finished school and I qualified to get into education at Sydney Uni, secondary education. But I took a gap year and on my gap year, I did my work experience to get my, like my hours up. Um, and then I studied my cert for yeah, in on my gap year while I was working at a gym, mm. um, which was uh, Penrith Lifestyle Fitness Centers back in the day, which was kind of the biggest gym in my area. And uh, yeah, and then after my gap year, I went to uni and I started studying education at Sydney Uni and it was good. It was really good. But already having taken that gap year and learned so much from being in the gym, being around adults, also earning money and managing myself as a trainer. By the time I kind of got to uni, I found like the crew that I was in with was fairly immature. Mm -hmm. And some of the, I guess, um, mature age students were older than me. I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like I felt, I did not fit in basically. And I was still training. I was still a personal trainer part-time while I was at uni. And I was yeah. also doing, uh, working at Star Trek, doing all kinds of uh, box collection and offload. And it was a, a pretty busy time. Yeah. And I got to my second year and I actually made a decision, like I don't actually want to do university anymore. So unfortunately, much to my mother's chagrin, I made an executive decision to stop studying and move to Melbourne to pursue my Taekwondo dreams. Yeah. Okay. So you were doing Taekwondo prior to BJJ? Yeah, I did Taekwondo for 15 years. Yeah. Um, and I moved to Melbourne to try and make the Olympics because the Australia team was in Melbourne. And also uh, one of my heroes and a great uh, Taekwondo practitioner, Carlo Massimino, he had just opened his gym in uh, Preston. So I wanted him to coach me. And so I, I trained there for four years, pretty much full time, trying yeah. to make the games. But yeah. unfortunately, I did not make the games, even though I did get an opportunity to uh, compete overseas. And I, I got to hang out with a lot of great uh, fighters and, and get a lot of, I guess, professional athlete experience. Even though I wasn't making any money, I was just living that kind of full time athlete life and doing personal training in and around that. Uh, yeah. I learned a lot in that process and also was able to build something of a, a personal training career from uh, developing my skills and my education over that time period. 
Yeah, cool. Okay. Well, take us up to speed on what you're doing now. I know you've moved up to Sydney, um, which is pretty exciting. And you've got the bulletproof thing going on. And are you competing? Tell me a little bit about your, like, uh, what, what work looks like, what you guys are doing business-wise and how it's all sort of going for you. Yeah, well, I guess like so. Yeah, I mean, I was in I was in Melbourne for sixteen years, and and once I once I wasn't able to kind of achieve my goal in Taekwondo, I I, I stopped. I, t- I was telling myself I was taking a break, but I never kind of went back. And then I found Brazilian Jiu Jitsu when I was living in St Kilda. So yeah. yeah, man, like I think what was great about doing grappling was it just I realized that actually, as far as my body composition goes, it was much more the sport for me. Um, even though I spent a long time trying to compete with long-limbed humans who were kicking me a lot. Uh, having a low center of gravity and shorter legs is very good for grappling. So um, I excelled in jiu-jitsu fairly quickly. And uh, I noticed there was a big hole in the strength conditioning side of jiu-jitsu. Because coming from a sport, an Olympic sport, where they're getting you to do squats and plyometrics and sprints and and recovery sessions and hot cold and you know you know stretching multiple times a day and basically living like a professional athlete mm-hmm. managing your nutrition managing your weight cut like all these things yeah. i came to jiu-jitsu and it was so unprofessional like people are just they're just doing whatever and i thought why are you guys not stretching like why are you guys not lifting weights and i just thought to myself as a trainer having been a trainer at that point for almost seven years, I thought, man, there's room for something here. So then I started working on kind of my own theories about what was most applicable to help condition and I guess help strengthen and improve the flexibility of a Brazilian jiu-jitsu athlete. And so Mm -hmm. I started working on a thing called grapple fitness. In a parallel universe in Sydney, Joey was doing something pretty similar. And, um, Joe having his background in PT as well as kettlebell training. And that was something that I was very proficient at. He was kind of working on his own ideas around how to be fit and strong for grapplers. And it was over time that we kind of came to cross paths. And um, yeah, we were, we were, I think I had come to the conclusion after training in Brazil and traveling overseas in the States and in Canada as well, and looking at wrestlers and judokas and, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu athletes, even at the highest level, there were people who didn't have properly formed programs that were periodized. They didn't have a path towards peak performance for Mm -hmm. their sport. They just trained as hard as they could. And if they didn't break, then that was good. And that was the approach, even at the highest level. So I felt there needed to be a change there and that I could influence that. And then ultimately, I said to Joey a couple of years ago, mate, we should collaborate. We are doing very similar things. Us working together would be a synergy that would benefit both of us and would extend to both of our networks. And that way we could kind of fill each other's gaps while also producing something that would be very beneficial to the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu community. And that's how Bulletproof for BJJ started. And now I'm here in Sydney, we're just ramping things up we just launched our own podcast so yeah yeah i saw that come out i haven't listened to it yet but that's super exciting that one's earmarked for later on yeah no that's cool i know you've you've got lots of other information to consume john so um 
how has it been for you? Like, tell us a little bit about that journey from, you know, bringing the idea, coming together, partnering up, um, I guess, committing to it, you know, and launching it out there as, as a new brand and how you found those early stages and what's worked for you. Look, I think it's, I think it's been good because uh, Joey and I have slightly different um, processes. Actually, can you give us a, can you give us a um, one or two sentence on, I just thinking now for the people listening before you go further, like, what is it like who, like exactly what the, what the offering looks like and the target audience and how it's delivered kind of thing, just so that we're all up to speed. All on the same page. Bulletproof for BJJ is essentially a method for anyone who does jujitsu to get stronger and more flexible and essentially make themselves more injury resistant. So we are trying to help people be more resilient in the face of the wear and tear that is BJJ. One of the biggest issues is you find this thing that you really enjoy and then it cripples you and you can't do it anymore. Uh, and that is honestly the experience of a lot of people. And someone being an expert jujitsu practitioner doesn't mean they're an expert SNC or they, you know, a lot of these coaches out there have no idea how to help you when you're injured. So what we've tried to do is create a program that is online that people can subscribe to that gives them access to a program that is filtered through the lens of a jujitsu person. So something that is going to give them things that will translate to their rolling, but also help undo the evils that jujitsu does. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I know a lot of people, it seems like, I, and I have no experience in that sport, but man, there seems like there's a lot of injuries with, with just lay people, it's just lay people, point. right? Like early, early on kind of thing, knees and shoulders yeah. and yeah. Knees, shoulders, elbows, all, all of the above. Yeah. And so look, you, you, it's, it's in the fine print, right? Like, I mean, it's no totally. way to sell a program. If you say, okay, um, look, we want you to sign up for this thing. Uh, look, within the first 12 months, you're probably going to have a, a surgery grade injury. Um, look, that's going to be expensive, maybe five grand. Uh, you might want to get some health insurance. Uh, the painkillers will, you know, that's going to affect your liver. Also, the, the rehab bill for your physio is going to be about $1,500. And then you're going to suffer a serious bout of depression from not being able to do the thing you love. A sign here. Mm. No, no one, is, no one is saying this. Yeah. You know, this is the secret subtext. It may not happen in the first 12 months, but at some point, if you stay on this journey, you are going to experience that. One thing I love about how you guys speak to the culture in the content and in the tone is that you almost poke fun at that whole mechanism. Like you, you sort of call it out in a loving way and sort of take the piss out of, um, you know, people not doing warmups or people getting injured yeah. or whatever it is. I, I like how you bring humor yeah. into it. Well, I mean, look, I think for Joe and myself, we, you know, we, we try not to take ourselves too seriously in the sense that we are, we have learned from our own mistakes, right? Yeah. But the, the, the painful thing is when someone knows better, but still does the stupid thing, right? And it's only once you're forced into that situation of great pain or discomfort, 
that you have to then confront the fact that you're not doing, you're not paying your dues. You're not doing the requisite work. Do the work. Hashtag do the work. This is the thing that we're always talking about. And really, you know, it's like eat your vegetables. It's like if you're going to be an adult, if you want to enjoy your life, you, you should gear your reward centers around looking after yourself. Don't act like a 16-year-old when you are 45 and you have a physical job and you've got kids. If you blow out your knee, it's going to have serious ramifications, not only on the fact that you can't enjoy jiu-jitsu, but the fact that you can't function as a human. And really what we want to do is we want to see, you know, we don't want to see everybody following that old martial arts path of I am the sensei, I look like I'm 100 years old, but I'm only 45. Like, you don't have to be a cripple. Like, we know better. And what we're trying to do in terms of in instituting change within the culture is to say, here is a method of self-maintenance. It's pretty simple. We just need you to stick to it. And the more we can sell that and the more we can kind of not even make it sexy, but just make it a thing, people go, yeah, that's right. I stretch after I train. Oh, yeah, I do my own warm-up. Yeah, I, I work on my body when I'm off the mat. Like, to actually make it, like, you know, make it uh, an inherent part of the journey so that mm. people can make it to black belt. They don't get so brutally injured. They got to quit when they're halfway. Yeah, I like that. I was trying to think in my mind how you might juggle that, uh, you know, that worldview because part of the old culture would have been most likely to not do the mobility and strength and warm up and is kind of just do it old school, right? Just get in and get started. Yeah, but when you were old school, you died when you were 35. It didn't matter. You were going to cop, you're going to have to commit seppuku. You're going to have to <laughs> bloody gut yourself because you didn't wear your hat in court in front of the emperor's daughter or some bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you know, like no one lived past 50 back in the days. Like there was no need to preserve yourself. But guys, like the, the people who are doing Bulletproof for BJJ are usually coming to jiu-jitsu later in life. Mm. Don't get me wrong. We have some young fit people who do the program because, you know, it can be challenging, but it's really up to your level as to what you engage, how you engage with it. And we find a lot of our people are grown adults who have kids, who found jiu-jitsu later in life, and they really want to keep it in their life. And the great thing about jiu-jitsu done the right way, you can do it into your 60s, into your 70s. You can approach it in that way. And really, it's having the humility to accept that we are not indestructible. And when we do do jiu-jitsu, it is an extreme thing. And we cannot take for granted that if we keep doing it without doing the maintenance, our body will break down and we won't be able to continue. So it's just seeing that jujitsu, as rewarding as it is, is also super taxing. And, it, and, and if we try and just ignore that, we are going to prematurely age our bodies and no one wants to feel older than they actually are. Mm. Yeah, cool. Okay, so you've got a subscription, online subscription model uh, that you guys have largely built or use uh, Instagram for marketing. Is that correct? Like it's pretty much Instagram focused platform. Yes. We put a lot of time and energy into Instagram this year. We'll be putting more time into YouTube because yeah. we want to actually just convey more information. And I had pushed quite hard for the newsletter and the podcast. 
and uh, because I feel like that those are mediums that I both consume. And when I look around at the jujitsu culture, I feel like people are not building the culture. When we talk about the state of the art, people are not expanding the art. They're just iterating the same. Like here's another technique video. Here is a, you know, another funny jujitsu meme. That's cool. That's fine. That's fun. But that's not actually helping people. So as a point of contribution, I, like I really want to try to, or we are in the process of giving people legitimate options, whether you're like quite injured and, and not have a high level of capacity, you are a very fit and capable person, or you're somebody who's just a bit out of shape and you're trying to keep your body together so that you can go to jiu-jitsu and get the most out of it. We're trying to give as many answers as we can to people in our community. And yeah. I feel that we are getting, we have those, we have that information, we have those answers, but what we're trying to learn and master is how we communicate that through the internet. Yeah. Through, yeah, through cool. the user experience of our website, through better content on Instagram, through, you know, uh, through the podcast, through, you know, better formatting of the newsletter and creating better video links and just making it all so that, when people get involved with it, they're like, this is awesome. This is helpful to me. Uh, in the same way, all the people that I follow for philosophy, thinking, business ideas, you know, I'm very grateful to all these thinkers like Seth Godin, um, you know, Ryan Holiday, um, uh, what's his name? The Knowledge Project, uh, Canadian guy, Shane Parrish, mm. um, you know, Tim Ferriss, like, all these people who have been able to use a medium to condense, refine and disseminate ideas, it's helped me. Like I'm smarter as a result. I would like to be similar in the sense that I know the limits on my knowledge, but I feel like what I know and what I've helped other people with is not being done in the culture of jiu-jitsu, which is the thing I care about most. So it's like, it bothers me. So it's like, right, I have to change this because no one else is doing that. Like the guys with the most power, like a guy like Gordon Ryan is too busy, like, you know, stroking his own ego, you know, having a crack at people, taking steroids and then telling people, hey, you should buy my DVD on mindset. Like you're a spoiled brat. You're 26 years old. You're the best grappler in the world. And this is what you do with your platform. You've got half a million followers and you can't say anything decent. You have to just, you know, you know, verbally jerk off on, onto Instagram. Like, this is what you're good for. I'm disappointed. I wish I was bigger because like Gordon Ryan, like you're not using, you, like he's 26 years old and the guy has been rewarded for being sensational, for being this kind of Conor McGregor-esque jujitsu guy, right? Mm. So I understand like he's very wealthy and successful off his behavior. But I think what he probably doesn't understand is he could do so much more. And I'm nobody, I'm not famous, but I feel just off making a concerted effort to communicate better, I'm helping people. And that makes me happy. So that's what we're trying to do with Bulletproof for BJJ. Yeah. And uh, I want to hear about the card game as well, because you've developed a card game, Indeed. which I think is awesome. You've got the t-shirt on. Maybe you could share how that came about, the the origin story and where, like, what's that all about? Cause that's pretty cool. Okay. Well, look, uh, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you for steering me back on track. 
Uh, I will digress. Multiple. We've got so um, many bases to um, cover with you that I think we've got to just chip, chip, chip through them. We almost need a time. We need almost need like an interval timer for all your projects. We do. We do. Three minutes to turn it over. Yeah. Um, so I used to play Uno a lot with my sisters when we were kids. You know, we, 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 you know, we would go on road trips in the old Tarago. Uh, you know, no aircon, just wind down the windows, get the spray bottle out. And we'd just be pumping Uno in the back of the car, like rainy day, play Uno. And I had thought to myself when I started jujitsu, probably, I was probably three or four years in that maybe there should be like a jujitsu game. And I was probably around my purple belt. I'd been doing it probably six or seven years. And I thought maybe I could make a jujitsu game, like a jujitsu Uno. And I just didn't know exactly what that would look like. But I guess the way I conceptualized jujitsu is there are starting positions. There are transitions. Like in the same way in Uno, you have a reversal or a skip card. You know, there's transitions. There's controls. So a control, I guess, I don't know. Anyway, a control could be anything, but it, it, can, it stops the game. And then a submission is really like how you finish. And that could be a wild card, you know? And so I was conceptualizing this game. And at the time I was dating a, um, a lady who was very anti-jiu-jitsu, but she was very good at cards. And she would always be like, oh, why you got to train jiu-jitsu so much? Like, why can't you spend more time with me? And she was just like very negative on jiu-jitsu. And anyway, I said, look, I'm, I, I'm going to make this card game. She's like, why would you do that? It's so nerdy. And I'm like, yeah, jiu-jitsu people are nerds. Like, like it, it really, jiu-jitsu is the nerds martial art because you have to be so cerebral. You have to obsess over it and think about it so much to get good at it. Like anyone who's high level at jiu-jitsu isn't just like a physical savage. They are like quite cerebral because it takes a lot of, like mental chess, as well as the physical aspect to attack, counterattack, invent moves, counter moves, et cetera, et cetera. So then I started drawing them just on cards, you know, like just literally doing little stick figures on palm cards and putting together the basic semblance of a game. And then I said to her, um, let's play a game. And I showed her how to play the game and we played a couple of games and she beat me four games in a row. And she was like, oh, I like this game. And I was like, duh, that's not how I planned it. But I was like, well, there must be something here because she doesn't really like jujitsu, mm -hmm. but she liked the game. She enjoyed the mechanics of the game. And the truth is jujitsu is very theoretical, but you have to then take it into practice. And one of the biggest problems for most people is they can't conceptually put the steps together. Mm -hmm. So I started to break it down uh, but then unfortunately, um, well, fortunately or unfortunately, we, we broke up and that kind of put my life into some turmoil and I just shelved the game and I did nothing about it for say, I think probably two years. Mm -hmm. And then I was ac actually at the Jungle Brothers retreat um, up the North Coast and I was uh, meditating on the beach, you know, 5am with the whole tribe meditating on the beach. And I thought to myself, man, I've done, I've had some fun experiences with my life, but I haven't created anything. And then a little voice in my head said, oh, you made a game. And I was like, oh, I did make a game. And then it just like, was just, it was just in my mind. And I, I talked to one of my friends and a mentor and I said, oh man, do you remember I was going to make that game? He said, yeah, why didn't you make that game? I was like, I don't know. I just, I just didn't. He's like, well, what are you doing? Make it. So I was like, okay, I guess I will. 
Anyway, it's a very expensive process. <laughs> That's the thing. Part of the reason why people don't actually explore ideas is it's very labor intensive, time intensive, you name it, is big effort. Mm -hmm. And actually my jujitsu had to take a bit of a back seat in order for me to design this game. So mm -hmm. I literally sat down and drew with a lead pencil these images and then used an art line pen to black it in. And that took me probably eight months to design the game fully. And you did all I the illustrations? A custom... Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. game and that was about three years ago two three and a half years ago and look it was really the beta version of the game because even though it was kind of it was quite basic and black and white and very chance based people bought it because it was a jiu-jitsu game and there was no mm -hmm. jiu-jitsu game but it wasn't close enough to jiu-jitsu so then after about 12 months i got an ipad and i got the that and luckily for me they had designed the procreate app which is really just visual, like digital design for dummies, you know? And my background, even though I had done art in high school, I'd done graffiti uh, most of my teenage years. And I'd always been interested in drawing and art composition. So I was just trying to take my graffiti sketching skills and, you know, my ability to draw and apply it to the iPad. But I, I was an idiot, you know? I was like getting, I was getting a glass and like, drawing around the glass to get a circle on the ipad screen and i would get a ruler and rule a line on the screen and like i you know classic idiot thing didn't seek advice until three months down the track went into the apple store and said hey can someone show me how to use this properly and there was like a very effete guy who was like oh yeah sure just go over there craig he'll help you out and i like i, I jumped in on one of their like sessions and they were talking about line correct so you can draw a wiggly line and if you hold the stylus to the pad for three seconds, the line autocorrects. I was like, mm. what? And then same with the circle. You draw a dodgy circle, hold it there, it autocorrects. I was like, ah, I wasted months. Yeah. Anyway, very quickly, I picked up all these tips on layering, um, different brushes, how to use the different um, colors and everything. And I was like, right. Then I got online and I paid for some courses online on how to use Procreate. And then I redesigned the game and I implemented a thing called flow icons, which are like suits that join the different attacks together, which give the attacks strength and make it more skill-based and less chance-based. And I redesigned the whole game. And that cool. took me well over 12 months. Yeah. Um, and then so in late 2019, uh, maybe not yeah no it was late 2019 i released the second edition of the game and so let me give you an idea of this so the, the first game it took me more than 18 months to sell about 400 or so units of that game and i was selling in person at jujitsu tournaments selling it at jujitsu clubs and just going face to face i didn't really i had a website but it wasn't very good and even to this i need to still work on my website but that said, when I brought out the new version of the game, it was just before Christmas, within about four months, I'd sold almost a thousand copies of the game. So the response to the new game was so good. And it was, mm. it was like, great. 
And um, so since that time, I've been able to get some distribution in the States. I've sold about almost 1,500 decks in America um, off very little promotion. I've, uh, I've sponsored a few jiu-jitsu podcasts and done some Instagram stuff, but um, you know, I haven't really pushed it that hard. But all the time I had a story in the back of my head of what was behind the game. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been working on more recently. When you say the story, you're saying you're meaning story, story as in like written book kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So like I had some characters in my mind and I, I, I've had a story that I, I guess I like storytelling, even though I'm not a writer per se. But then I, 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 when I was over in the States at the end of 2019, I was, um, I, I was writing the characters for the story. I was writing the villain. I was writing the hero. I was writing the family. I was writing the town, the, the world. I was creating it while I was on holiday. I was writing every day. And then when it came back, I was getting ready to go for a big launch of the game in America because I'd introduced it to some people. And then COVID hit right mm-hmm. at the time when I was due to go to the States to really promo the game. And at that time, I already had the idea of this story burning in my mind for probably 18 months. And I had the characters fleshed out and then COVID hit and I couldn't do PT. I couldn't teach jujitsu. Um, I couldn't do a lot of things. So I actually had to move furniture all of 2020 to um, 2020 to, to make money. Yeah, that that's time, when we spoke, I guess, I, wasn't, I wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It yeah. was. Um, and I just said, you know what? This is an opportunity. When am I going to have this opportunity to do nothing else? Like I was in Melbourne. We were locked down. I can only stay inside. This is actually awesome because like uh, you may be across Cal Newport, uh, his book, Deep Work. Mm-hmm. Cal Newport talks a lot about isolation being an essential ingredient in great ideas being created or formulated, whether it be Isaac Newton, um, Einstein, great writers, you know, uh, you know, they would often seclude themselves to be able to think on an idea and make it happen. So really 2020 enabled me to write the Jugo books. Well, I mean, originally it was a book, but now it's kind of been divided in two. So, yeah. So the book's done now? Where's that at? Where, where's, what's the status? So currently right now, I'm just finishing the, the reviews on the line edit um for the the first book so i wrote 120,000 words which is one book and then i kind of i i had approached different editors and i found a good editor who specialized in teen fiction and middle grade books um and the youth audience and you know the book is aimed at you know 12 year olds yeah but essentially it's the story of the first jujitsu superhero and um the, it, the current status is the first book should be published by late June, early July. Cool. And the second book should be out, you know, not long after that because I, I wrote it as one book. And when I got it to the editors, they were like, look, 12 year olds are not going to read a 120,000 word book. You need to break this up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, no problem. And I mean, essentially it's the story of a bullied kid who's a nerd, which is very much the kind of autobiographical side of my life. And at a critical point, um, 
he finds Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he's basically the smartest kid of all time. His name is Jugo, and he has total recall. So he can remember everything he has ever learned. So he can even just learn something by watching it. But his mother kind of wrapped him up in cotton wool and wouldn't let him play sports. And he lives in this little crappy industrial town called Greystains. And the book is set in 1991. So it's that pre-internet, early 90s kind of vibe. And yeah, the UFC hasn't happened. No one gives us a damn about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he learns, basically, he's like a black belt in three months. He learns so much jiu-jitsu so rapidly that when the bully beats him unconscious and gets suspended, and then when the bully comes back, Jugo has learned a lot of jiu-jitsu, so he's ready. And that's the, the, essentially the, the core tenant of the first book. The second book is that in this town of Greystains, it's actually built around this huge industrial complex called GenCon. The father of the bully, Nero. So the bully is Marcus Caesar Vieira. His father is Nero Caesar Vieira. Now their names actually have an origin in kind of, you know, in the history of like the Roman Empire, because Nero was the Caesar who they say laughed or fiddled while Rome burned. And Marcus was the good emperor, the, the philosopher king. But I kind of swapped it around. So Marcus is the son of Nero. And Nero is doing all these nefarious things, exploiting the people in the town, destroying the natural environment in the town, polluting it. And there's also something darker going on. And Jugo starts to, he gets more confidence with his jujitsu. And he kind of, I'm not going to say too much, but he, for some important reason, starts to investigate these things that are going on in the town uh -huh. and through this course of action this leads him to become a superhero that's super cool man how did you, you. how did, yeah how did you um how did you come up with all of the context the details the names like how did it all come to you my hyperactive imagination i mean look everybody in the book is a blend of different people I've known in my life. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, from a young age, my mum really put books in my face. So, and also just, I lived my life through Hollywood as a child. I just watched a lot of movies. I read a lot of books, you know, whether it be Enid Blyton, you know, whether it be, you know, the, the Secret Seven, you know, the, the, the Fantastic Five, you know, like all these kind of books that form the foundation the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, Animal Farm, you know, mm. Brave New World, 1984, Fahrenheit 451 or 459. You know, like I, I read so many different authors, uh, you know, uh, War of the Worlds. You know, I was only allowed to watch the ABC as a kid. I wasn't really allowed to watch cartoons. So I had to be very, like, get a lot of education in that way. Yeah. Um, but then also I see a lot of deficiencies in a lot of martial arts tales. So like The Last Airbender is crap. Yeah, if you're listening to this and you like The Last Airbender, that's fine. I've got something better for you. <laughs> you know, all the great messages, like for example, you know, Bruce Lee was meant to be in the series Kung Fu, but he was too Chinese. So they put David Carradine in there, right? Mm. I mean, all respect to Dave Carradine, but that was Bruce's script. He mm. wrote it. Right. And he wanted to convey 
the message of martial arts through cinema, which he did, you know, he wanted to give the world a Chinese superhero. And, and I have been obsessed with Bruce Lee since I was very young. Yeah. Like I watched Enter the Dragon when I was five. It's one of the earliest movie memories in my mind. And Bruce had an amazing way of conveying martial arts philosophy, just speaking. I want to give the world a jujitsu superhero. I feel that Jugo is that. And that through this series, because really the Jugo books are the beginning, because mm. then he goes off to high school and it's 1992 yeah. and he meets all the other fighting styles. And then the Empire High series is like Empire City is where he goes to high school and that's where he meets kickboxing and wrestling and boxing and, and Taekwondo and, and, and they're not friends. It's conflict, but there's a lot of corruption around the school as well. So they have to overcome their, their competition and conflict and all the teenage business to be able to deal with all these forces that are going to destroy the high school or take it away from them and their ability to get educated and make their way in the world. And so I see it as like really the Harry Potter, the MMA Harry Potter. Yeah. But the, the lessons are authentic. You know, the lessons about humility and overcoming anger and dealing with violence and peer pressure and all these things. It's like, if I didn't have martial arts in my life when I was a teenager, I probably would have gone to jail. So I would like a story to be told. I would like a narrative to be told that is more inclusive of more cultures and tells mm. a more broader context to people's martial arts experience. Because for all these kids, it's not that they're like superhuman strong. I mean, some of them are, but really their superpower is martial arts. Yeah. And their strength is their ability to work together. Yeah. So really it's a big advocacy tool for martial arts. And that's what I'm trying to do through like a legitimate, well-told story. Yeah. I love it, man. That's so cool. And I mean, just just listening to you, when you do the bulletproof work, or you do the uh, the writing, or the game, or even your work, I'm not sure if you're still working with clients like one on one or training them. But to have it all come from such a such a personal story and wealth of experience. Um, for yourself from BJJ is pretty cool. You know, just listening well, I, to you sort of riff on it, it's pretty cool. You don't hear that very often. Well, look, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that, John. I mean, look, if you, I had people telling me when I was a kid, you have no talent, mm -hmm. right? And that's fine because talent is actually a lie. It's bullshit. It's a self-limiting belief. Like I will, I will argue with anybody about talent. Everything is learned. Mm -hmm. The reason why I am who I am now is because I applied my ability to learn to a set of skills and techniques that I leveraged. Like if you looked at me as an asthmatic, out of shape, little 10 and a half year old kid who couldn't do any sports to be where I am now, I was a national champion in Taekwondo, you know, competitively internationally in jujitsu. And now to be as strong as I am and as fit as I am at 38 years old, it's like, this is not a talent. This is my ability to apply my knowledge to my body. And now it's like, I want to convey to people that anyone who tells you that it's not possible, you know, and this is not some rah-rah motivational bullshit. This is no analyze your strengths, analyze your weaknesses. Anything you're not good at, you can improve. Anything you are good at, you can improve more. 
but it's like i'm thinking of learning coding because i'm like in truth all the people i admire code you know and also i want my kids to have that ability and i was thinking about learning some more languages like i'm not i don't speak like i know a little bit of portuguese and a tiny bit of polish and i, I want to double down on those but i was thinking i want to learn to code because i think this is this is the language of the current language and the language of the future mm. and i just want to understand it and for a long time i told myself oh i'm not particularly good with technology but that was a choice and i'm changing that now and um the reason why i would say i i don't i'm not focused on competing in jujitsu because i remember i can't remember it was a very famous founder said competing is for suckers i'm not i'm not trying to compete mm. I, I i think it's actually a very zero-sum game if you can get on the podium you could be number one. Like I understand there are some very exceptional few people who always get on the podium every time, every time at the top spot for a period of time. But is that moving the needle forward? Is that changing the culture or is that more of the same? Mm. I'm actually not interested in trying to be a world champion. I used to be, I used to be obsessed with it. Now I'm like, how do I be the Bruce Lee of my time? How do I change the way people look at martial arts not how do i just like who was the world champion in 2001 for the lightweight category in bjj almost no one can tell you yeah even though that guy was a legend who can tell you the guy is still great to this day the, the, the time span for you to be great is like four or five years and then you're out of the collective consciousness of your culture mm. that's bullshit like that is that is just like humans ability to and now attention spans getting shorter and shorter. I want to change that. Like I see the game as a teaching tool for kids. Like you can learn Uno, but what do you learn from Uno? If you don't know how to count to nine and you don't know red, blue, yellow, and green, you need to go back to kindergarten. Like really, if you're learning colors and numbers from Uno, there's a problem. But like if you could teach a kid a game that could advance their thinking conceptually, then that could make them better at jujitsu. And teaching mm -hmm. kids is one of the hardest things you can do. And I, I learned that from when I was at uni and doing cracks with primary school kids, as well as like high school kids, you know? And then when I look at the book, I'm like, you know, we all need a mythology. Star Wars was a true great mythology. Harry Potter, though derivative, is still its own world and mythology. But what did it do? It just created a whole bunch of products getting made out of China. Here's a plastic wand. Here's some cheap hat. It's all going to be landfill. It's nothing to me. Don't get me wrong. I respect what was done in the mythology of that. But really, what did it do for the world? Not much. But if you give the world a martial arts superhero and a little kid goes, I want to be like that. I want to do martial arts. Those lessons and skills that filter down from that through their life means that we will have better humans in the world. And I fully believe that jiu-jitsu will be mainstream within the next five to ten years and that really this is just the beginning of one story within the culture that hasn't been told and then it will there'll be many iterations and extrapolations from there yeah i love it man so where can people follow find you or the game or what's what's the best because i'm sure a lot of people hear this and be pretty interested in checking out more of what you do um your writing or the book when it comes out or the game like where the go-to spots well look um for for instagram if people are interested in the game or the book um it's at jugo play 
J-I-U-G-O-P-L-A-Y. If people want to, I mean, there's a link there to go to the website. The website is www.jugoplay.com. Um, in terms of uh, Bulletproof, you know, we're at Bulletproof for BJJ. Um, the website is also www.bulletproofforbjj.com. And, and really, like, um, I'm at Jungle Brothers. So I'm there for my own training. I teach jujitsu there a couple okay. of days a week. Yeah. I, I do a little bit of one-on-one stuff. How are you enjoying um, that, the teaching like, up there since you've moved up? Ah, it's awesome. Yeah. I love teaching jujitsu. I mean, really, I would teach jujitsu for free. Yeah. Like, it's not, you know, even though, you know, that's what I spent, you know, kind of done jujitsu for 13 years now. Um, I, I mean, ideally, my goal is to have, I don't know if you're across the powerlifter, Mark Bell mm-hmm. at all. Free gym. He has a free, free gym. That's yeah. what I want. I want, like, um, uh, kind of like an MMA gym slash school for entrepreneurship that is free. So it'll be like, I don't know how I'm going to organize it. I better get very successful with this book. Uh, but um, basically the only thing people have to pay for is their equipment, like their uniform or their gloves or whatever it might be. And mm-hmm. I want to give opportunities to um, people in the community who are possibly disenfranchised or don't have the resources get them involved with the community of, of jiu-jitsu as well as MMA, and then give them opportunities to learn higher order skills to be able to have their own business, to be able to leverage the internet, to be able to create and pioneer and do these things and have a support network that helps connect them to people who would invest in their ideas. Yeah, That is my goal. Like, I guess like why Combinator, but less preppy and more grassroots yeah, yeah, and yeah. more badass. Yeah. Because those guys don't do jujitsu. <laughs> Shots awesome. fired. Come at Shots, me, white yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. It was uh, it was really cool and um, uh, inspirational to hear your story and and also just all of the different things that you're doing. Um, yeah, really cool. I I knew it would be a cool conversation because I remember you spoke a little bit about some of the stuff. Um, the writing and the game and, and that sort of thing when we connected last time, but it was cool to hear more of it and sort of the background. And I think a lot of people can get inspired just to do, just to try things. You know, I think one of the things I pick up yeah. listening to you is like, you know, you might be away on holiday or at the beach and have an idea for something. And if it keeps nagging at you, like just try it, you know, figure it out or draw it out on the cards, yeah. like what you did, or, you know, I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah and, and look, I really appreciate your generosity in uh, inviting me on here. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of what you do. And, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I love Seth. Uh, but I guess, I guess the thing that I – and this is, this is in no way – this is more – you know, I understand that you will uh, interpret this in the correct way. Seth doesn't need to do what he does. You know, Seth's made and paid in the shade, right? You. I guess what I like about seeing what you do with the people you work with and the content you put out, I, I feel like it's much more attainable. Like you feel more real than Seth. Seth feels like he could be a deep fake, you know, like Seth almost feels like uh, not human uh, because he's, he, he speaks in such complete sentences and he's kind of so exact. I mean, I, I'm not saying Seth isn't real, but I feel that in a lot of ways, you are more real 
you know, there's not anyone listening derivative of what he does. Yeah, yeah. For, for anyone listening, um, JT's kindly, kindly pointing out that for, for anyone who doesn't know Seth Godin, um, and he's been on this podcast, uh, he has language. Amazing down, guy. He Amazing. has language to an art to the point where, like JT says, it, yes. it almost sounds like it's unreal or non-real because it's yes. so perfect. Um, so he really is just kindly telling me that he enjoys all of my mistakes and, and screw ups. Whereas I know, man, I'm just kidding. That. I'm kidding. I'm not saying that. I mean, what I'm saying is I feel that you are more personable than Seth. I appreciate Seth, but it, I, and this is not even like an Australian, you know, but you're back. You're are you? You're from New Zealand. I'm, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Um, I'm Kiwi. actually dual. I'm US and Kiwi. Right. We don't go. talk about the US side that much. No, you. No one does. No one does. It's stuck. Um, <laughs> but I, I steal. I steal everything I can from Seth. I, I've stolen yeah. from him yeah. for the last yeah, six to eight me years. Man, I, um, I, I, you know, great artists. I mean, good artists borrow. Great artists steal. I, I rip everything from Seth. I just make it sound, you know, more gangster. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, Seth hasn't got the credentials to, you know, say I'll fight you for it. But, um, you know, but all I was going to say, I'm sure he'd be good at jujitsu. I just want to thank you for allowing me to come on here and, and, and share. And um, also appreciate what you do because I get a lot from your content and it makes me think about what I'm doing. And so I, I feel very... Uh, privilege to be able to um have this conversation with you oh thank you man i appreciate that and thanks again for coming on and all your generous work as well you you put you're doing a lot and you're putting out a lot and i think um it's inspirational and um yeah it's a real positive message as well so it's really cool no man thank you so much keep, keep really going you. oh man there's no there's no stopping it's not a matter of I, if it's just a matter of when i can tell i can tell i love it all right, brother, I'll uh, wrap up the recording there. For everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll pop JT's handles into the little show notes and uh, go check out his work and find him. And if you're around Sydney, which I know a lot of people are, head over to Jungle Brothers as well and, and um, drop in and say hi and see the, do they still call it the Church of Gains or something like that? It's Australia's uh, coolest gym. I know that they've claimed it is that. A, it is a, it's a, it's a cool gym. It's a cool gym. Um, I was, well, we, we uh, did the Persian yoga thing recently. Oh, they, cool. They, the gym in, in, in Persian yoga is called the Zuhana, which is the house of strength. Nice. And so we were, <laughs> we were playing with that. Yeah. I love it. All right, brother. Thanks so much. We'll get you back on again. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate you and everything you do, man. Speak to you soon. And that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed that one. As mentioned, I'll put JT's handles and contact details into the show notes. I really appreciate you sticking around for this one and I'll see you on the next episode. Have a great one.